So uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, iPads, tablets, phones, whatever, turn to Genesis chapter 24. We're going to do that today. We'll go through that ch- half of that chapter today. And, and while you're doing that, let me just take a minute and say we're going to be looking at how Abraham lets God, trust God, to provide a wife for his only son, Isaac. In this story, we're going to see how God is always faithful to his promises. From the beginning of humanity up to today, God has made promises to us that are dependable. And today we're going to be challenged as we look at how we are doing at trusting in the promises of God. So as we reach Genesis 24, Abraham's now about 140 years old. No one's probably that old here, right? You guys aren't in the 140s yet? 130s, one, we won't go there. So he's maybe physically old, but his spiritual life is very strong. He's, he's vibrant in that part of his life. And he believes that the Lord's going to continue to keep the promises that he has made to Abraham. But he knows that before he dies, he has to find a wife for Isaac. Because wife, I mean, because Isaac is going to carry on the lineage of the promise. And without a wife, he can't have all these many descendants that God has promised him. So what we're going to read about today is this amazing story about how not only Abraham, but also his trusted servant trusts in the promises of God. It's a story that reminds us that God is always faithful to keep his promises then and now. And that God is the one that we yield control of our lives to. And and when we yield control of our lives to something, it involves surrender. And so I wrote this little sentence here, and I just want you to look at it. It's on your outline. It's on on the screen. Because this is what we're going to be taking away today. We're going to be examining our own lives and looking at our level of trust in God is revealed by what we are willing to surrender. Our level of trust in God is revealed by what we are willing to surrender. Now, surrender is this reoccurring thing for anyone who follows Jesus, See, our pursuit of life that Jesus offers requires, I believe, a daily yes to the things that he asks of us, the, the surrender to the control of our life to his control. It's a life that we should wake up every morning and say, okay, God, I have a brand new day. I'm going to say yes to you. I'm going to re- surrender the control of my life to you. And even though something may not make sense right now and I'm not fully understanding it, I know you well enough to know that I can trust you. I can trust in the promises that I read in scripture that you've made. So I want to take a look at this story and see how this plays out. In this story, we have two scenes, kind of like a movie. Scene one, scene two, or I mean like a play, I guess. Scene one, scene two. Scene one, we got Abraham's commission. He gives an assignment to his servant to go find his wife. And then scene two is when the servant goes. It's his response. And there's a whole different journey that happens there. We're going to see how how he lives this out and what the the fruit of all this is. Now, Dan's been reading the passage every week and... uh, uh, we're going to do that again today, all 31 verses that I'm going to cover. So if you uh, have a Bible, you can look at it, or you have got them up here on the screen for us. But I want us to get the context of this whole big story, and then I want to dig into it and see how this works it out. So let's go. Ready? Yeah. I know you are. Good. Thanks, Debbie. So Abraham was now very old, verse 1, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. I'll explain that a little later. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living, but will, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. 
The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall, shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. And he set out for Aram Naharim and made his way to the town of Naor. He had camels kneeled down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. Verse 12, then he prayed, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let your down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I will water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Michal, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Naor. The woman who was very beautiful, a virgin, no man had ever slept with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. And after she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring weighing a becca and two gold bracelets weighing ten shekels. And then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Micah, born to Nahor. And she added, we have plenty of straw and fodder as well as room for you to spend the night. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. And now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and he hurried out to the man at the spring. And as soon as he'd seen the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and had heard Rebekah tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man, found him standing by his camels near the spring. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord. He said, why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for your camels. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just ask you to open our hearts and minds to all that you want us to learn and know from this story. And thank you for the truth that is revealed here in this time. And I pray that you would help us learn how to trust you and how to surrender in our lives in a better and greater way. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Scene one, Abraham's commission. The story begins with Abraham giving orders to his servant. And now he's turning to the final and the very important task of his life. Making sure that the line of promise and it continues. And for that to unfold, as we've said, he's got to find a son for Isaac. He's got to find a wife for Isaac to marry. And what we see here at this time is literally an arranged marriage with a twist. Abraham is sending his servant out to find a wife for Isaac. Now, it may seem strange to us to see a servant going off and making a decision on selecting a wife for his master's son. This is weird. But <laughs> This is weird. But, but it may be that Abraham was a little too old to make the trip himself. But this is definitely the father making arrangements to find a wife for his son, which was pretty common in, they, in that day, arranged marriages. They like to keep things within the families. Now, today, through though arranged marriages, just... They just don't feel right. They don't feel like the way we go about it today. We don't really go about finding spouses through arranged marriages today, at least in our country for the most part. I mean, isn't marriage all about finding the one person you cannot live without? You chuckle. (laughs) Actually, no, it's not. Biblically, it's about joining our lives together, your life with someone to make a commitment, a covenant agreement Abraham wasn't asking the servant to go out and find Isaac's soulmate. He's asking the servant to go out and find a woman who is going to be willing to make a commitment to Isaac and live out the blessings of the promises that are all in front of them. (laughs) Pretty important stuff. Something else I notice here is that even though Abraham has grown greatly in his faith and he's in his last few years of life, he still has to trust the Lord. I mean, we never get to the point in life where we can say, well, I've arrived in my walk with the Lord. I don't need to trust him anymore. I'm spiritually away down the road and I really don't need to rely on or trust in God. I can make my own way because I know how to do it. I mean, that never happens. It never happens. We never, no matter how old we are, grow out of our need to trust the Lord. And to the very end, God's will for Isaac continues to make these kinds of trusting and promised demands on Abraham's faith. And here Abraham is called upon to trust the Lord that he will indeed provide a bride for Isaac. See, God is the one we are yielding to. God is the one that Abraham is yielding to. Abraham has trusted his servant with all that he owned. He's this faithful manager of Abraham's possessions. And even though we don't know who this servant is, he he definitely is a guy who Abraham trusts and who has been faithful. So Abraham asked his servant to make a solemn vow about going out and finding a wife. And the servant takes an oath to do just that. Now, you agree with me, right? That this whole Making an oath thing by putting your hand under a thigh is a little strange. I'm not sure any of you have ever taken an oath by putting your hand under someone's thigh. Is that right? (laughs) Me neither. I'm so glad we moved to right hand with the Bible, don't you? We don't have to do that thigh thing anymore, you know? It's actually how they took oaths at that time. It was an important time. In fact, this is not the only place in Scripture we find that. You'll find it again in Genesis 47 with Jacob and Joseph. They did the very same thing. But Abraham tells him, go and find a wife for my son, but not from the daughters of the Canaanites, but from my own people. Why did he he say you can't go to the Canaanites? Well, more than likely, he's connected with Abraham's knowledge that God is going to bring destruction to the Canaanites. 
You may remember back in Genesis 15 that the Lord has promised Abraham that there would be a day when the sins of the Canaanites would lead to God's judgment and to his destruction. So I'm sure he didn't want to intermingle the line of the promise with the line that's going to be destroyed. But he's to go back to the country that Abraham originally left and find a wife among his relatives. But I think the servant shows some real wisdom and integrity here when he, when, when he says, well, he knows he can't make someone do something they don't want to do, you know, and yet he's making this vow before his master. He's so practical way, he says, well, you know, master, what if she doesn't want to come and live with somebody she's never met before? What do I do then? <laughs> what, if I, what if I go all that way and no one wants to come back with me? <laughs> so Abraham, in, in these verses, reassures the servant and demonstrates to God that he's going to surrender to him. He says, God's going to send you an angel. Don't worry about it. He's going to take care of all this stuff so that you can get a wife for Isaac. Essentially, he's trusting that God is going to provide this wife and that you don't have to, please don't, get, don't let him marry a Canaanite and don't take Isaac back to the land of promise. So here we see Abraham's attitude towards God's provision. I mean, he's convinced that God's going to provide not only a wife, but the right wife. And he's so convinced of that, he refuses to, to shortchange or to make any mistakes in how he goes about this. I mean, he refuses, refuses to lower the standards and go after Canaanites. And he refuses to allow Isaac to go back to the country that Abraham came out of. And he thinks, well, Isaac may just stay there. He may not even come back to the land of promise. And these conditions that Abraham's putting, I mean, they can be looked at as really restricting. He's narrowing the field of, of people who can qualify for this role of wife of Isaac. But you see, Abraham believes that God is in control of every detail and that he can trust him. Abraham is believing that God who's been faithful in the past, he's going to be faithful again in the future. He believes that the Lord will provide. And up to the very end of his life, he's waiting and trusting and resting in the Lord to fulfill these promises that are necessary for him. And I just thought, what an example Abraham is of, of faith and trust in God for us to even recognize and, and learn how to live like. Because you see, we want to pursue life in Jesus. And that means, I think, trusting in God's promises and his guidance in his care for our lives. I mean, Abraham chose to trust God. And oh, if we look back over these 140 years, he had a few times he took control of things, right? He took it in his own hands and said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this because I just don't see it happening. And whenever he did that, the end result went very badly. But today, at this time, we see a man who is totally surrendered to God. He has learned to trust God in all things. So in this job of finding a wife for Isaac, Abraham's made it difficult for sure. He's narrowed the field so that he can stay true to God's promises. But I, I just, you just hear the conversation between the servant and Abraham, right? He says, so the servant said, okay, so you want me to go find a wife for Isaac? Can I go over to the Canaanites? No, 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 don't go over there, don't go over there. Okay, can I take Isaac with me? No, you can't take Isaac with you. Well, what if I can't find someone to come back with me? And here's what he says. Don't worry. Servant, don't worry. God is in this and he is the one who will bring you success. That's true for our lives when we let him. 
I mean, some limits have been put on the choice the servant has. But all this does is help us realize that God is going to have to be the one that makes this happen. Because Abraham is so devoted to the promises of God, because he has surrendered his life to God, that meant that the only way this was going to work is if God did something. And so I see something for us to take away here. And it's this. Trusting in God's promises means to live in complete devotion to him. That's what I see Abraham doing. He had lived in complete devotion to the Lord. And to me, devotion suggests something deliberate, something premeditated. Devotion involves a determination that a person is going to organize his or her life today around Jesus, his character, his teachings, his unique grace, his forgiveness. Personal story. Shortly into my marriage, with Miriam, I came to a place spiritually. God was doing some work in my own heart spiritually that there wasn't, it wasn't just about going to church. Because I was raised going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And I thought that's what everyone did. And I thought that's all you had to do. But now at this point in my life, I was learning I needed to take Jesus into all of my life. And not just going to church and doing the church thing. So I, one day we sat down and talked together and she agreed, let's work out together on ordering our life around the truths of scripture, which means we have to read some scripture and we have to learn what scripture says about how to do life. And sometimes the decisions, sometimes the things we were facing didn't have an exact scripture, but it had principles that we could live by, right? So we tried to make decisions of life based upon that reality. What does scripture have to say to this about having children? Is that a good thing? About how we spend our money, about how I spend my time, about whether Miriam would be a stay-at-home mom or whether she'd be a work mom. Whether I'd take a job that required me to work on Sunday, which at the time I was working a job that was on Sunday. Would I open up my life to another man to help me stay spiritually where I wanted to stay? All these decisions that went on and on and on. And, and, and with these decisions, we just tried to be intentional ahead of the game to live within the teachings of scriptures. We wanted to devote our lives to this. Now, certain decisions, let me tell you, were hard to live in. One particularly comes to mind when we decided to have Miriam stay at home with the kids and not work. That put us in a position where we really had to see God come through for us financially. It was hard. It was difficult. At the time, we didn't know it. But we were working on trying to create an intentional devotion to Jesus through the teachings of his scripture. Listen, Miriam and I would say, we haven't done this perfectly. Abraham didn't do it perfectly. We don't do it perfectly. You try this, you probably won't do it perfectly. But devotion to Jesus involves intentional decisions to trust God's promises and to put yourself in that position. By making Jesus the central part of your life, by pausing when you're faced with an important or a life's decision that's right here in front of us and you say, I'm gonna pause because I need to find out what would Jesus do with this? How can I trust Jesus? What does he have to say about this situation? So that's scene one. Let's go on to scene two, the servant's response. Abraham trusts his servant. He's trusting that God's going to provide a wife. So the servant heads out. He heads on his journey. And we, we know he's a wise servant of how he goes about fulfilling the directives. I mean, he takes a team of people, more than likely. You don't go out in the desert by yourself. You have a whole team of people. You have supplies. They would normally take gifts because when they would meet people, they would offer a gift to someone. And it says they had 10 camels, probably to carry the load. Now, history tells us that camels weren't used very, on a wide scale until about 800 years after Abraham lived. So what this means is if you had camels, you had money. That's what it means. 
And his servant takes his 10 camels with him. And, and so anyone who meets him is going to be thinking, well, if the servant has 10 camels, how many camels must be left behind with the master? And he then arrives after a number of weeks at his destination and he stops at the well. There's wisdom there. Back in those days, you would send your single daughters out to the well to get some water. I'm not sure why this was the case. I couldn't find out why that was the case. But my best guess is that was the match.com of that time. <laughs> or maybe the Hebrew mingle of that time. I don't know. One of, the, one of those reasons. You know, we... <laughs> Now, just to be sure, we see this sort of thing later in the life of Moses. Moses actually meets his future wife, Zipporah, at a well. So this is not the only time God uses wells to bring people together. So find a well if you're single. <laughs> so this servant is wise, but he's also a man of faith. Because when he arrives at Nahor, what is the first thing he does? Pray. I mean, he's traveled 500 miles on foot, probably on camel as well. And the first thing he does when he gets there isn't go and get a drink of water, isn't go to the well and splash some water on his face, but he prays. And he's praying to God and appealing to God's control and sovereignty of the situation. When he says, please, God, make this happen. He knows there's no way he can make this happen. He asked God some very specific things for guidance in terms of who he should choose. So here we have this guy who is desperately wants to do this task before God. And we have a question. Is God obligated to answer this very specific prayer request and everything he's asked? No. And for us, when it comes to prayer, we've got to ask ourselves, does this mean that God is obligated to answer any prayer that we ask? No. But here's what I'd say about prayer. Here's my attitude. Pray boldly, pray confidently, pray very specifically with details and then put it in God's hands and trust his sovereignty. Because God is only obligated to answer the prayer, the ones that fit into his will for your life and my life. That's how he answers prayer. But I think even bigger than that, the, the servant's biggest ask has to do with those camels, watering those camels. Because I did a little research on this and I found out that it takes about 250 gallons to, uh, to fill up 10 camels. That'd be like 25 gallons of camel, right? So typically, in those days, you'd have to walk down to the well, fill up your jar, walk back up, dump it out, go back down to the well, fill it up, back up. And so these jars that are, were mentioned typically hold about three gallons. So if you got, you can divide the math. Those of you are really quick. So you got, uh, you've got 250 gallons and you've got three ga 250 ga gallons of water and three gallons in the jar. I figured about 84 trips this person would have to make. That is a big ask, would you say? Three gallons each. Have you ever carried three gallons in a jar? It didn't have a handle. Probably put it on her head, probably put it on his shoulder. Not just any woman is going to do this. It seems like the servant is going to be unlikely to find someone to do this. God is going to have to be in this. Do we live our lives that way? Where God's got to be in it for it to come about. So before he finished praying, here comes Rebecca. It's pretty cool. He's not even done praying. He looks up. There she is, right? We learn some important things about Rebecca next. We learn uh, as readers, we become aware of God's direction even before the servant does because we learn she's from Abraham's family. It's one of Abraham's conditions. In this case, she is his first cousin once removed, whatever that means. I think I got it figured out, right? She's the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. Okay? No, she's, yeah. 
Let's put it this way. She's a cousin <laughs> to Isaac, first cousin. And so, by the way, marrying cousins was kind of common in those days. And I checked out Google this morning just so I could be accurate. In all of our 50 states, most states allow marrying of first cousins. It doesn't seem like most of us do that, but that's still legal. All right. She was beautiful. Now, this doesn't hurt, right? I mean, Isaac's going to be happy. I'm, I'm glad you brought me a beautiful wife instead of one that's not so beautiful. And then she says she was a virgin. This is important. Being a virgin is a desired state for a woman about to be married. And for that matter, it still is today, right? Not only for the man, woman, but also for the man. See, being a virgin set Rebecca apart from being an immoral person. All these are qualities that are important for any wife, but especially for the wife of Isaac. So Rebecca shows up and not only gives him a drink, but also waters his camels. So in this most unlikely situation, the watering of camels, God answers the servant's prayer. This is not coincidence, by the way. Oh, it just happened to happen. No, it didn't just happen to happen. This is not coincidence. Rebecca said she would water them until what? They'd finish drinking. So you know how long it takes you to take your, if you've got an empty gas tank, you put your gas tank, your, your water with the nozzle in there, and you're trying to fill up the gas tank, and it fills up to full, and you can't take any more. That's the idea here. She's going to give enough water to these camels to where, I'm done, I don't want any more water, you know. And, and that's a lot of water. Here she is, this friendly, outgoing, unselfish, energetic woman who doesn't want to do a task halfway, but thoroughly, completely. Any girl would have given him a drink because that's what you do in those days, to be polite. But to voluntarily offer to water all those camels, that's pretty improbable. But Rebecca does it. And I think that's why the servant just, it says he stood there and watched. I think he was just saying, God, you are at work. You are answering my prayer. Thank you, God. I mean, there's no way this servant could have made this happen. God is in control and he knows it. So the servant is seeing his prayer being answered and so quickly he knows God has prospered him. And the most amazing thing about this passage is that Abraham and Isaac are 500 miles away when all this is unfolding. They're completely separated from all this. This is incredible faith and trust in God's promises, both for Abraham and Isaac. They're yielding the control of this entire thing to God. They think they're yielding it to the servant, but it's really to God. And I'm certain there's a point here is that God was in charge, and Abraham knew that. And the faith of Abraham has been over the years observed and embraced by all who are close to him. Just picture his household, and it even has infiltrated into the life of this servant being able to trust God. And this trust had grown in this entire area to this incredible proportions. Abraham just knew with absolutely no reservations that, that God would provide the appropriate wife at just the right time. Boy, what a have confidence of God in that, in the situations we face in life. That would be so cool, so wonderful as we learn how to trust God in these things. So after he's, she's done, he pulls out a nose ring and bracelets, and the text tells us their weight's 10 and a half shekels, a becca's a half a shekel of gold, and that would be the equivalent of about $15,000 worth of jewelry in today's money. That was probably a lot of more money back then, 15000 in today. I mean, he's done all that he can do to make sure Rebecca's willing to return home with him and marry Isaac. He's shown her, for example, he's not some drifter. He's not some vagabond. He's not some sketchy guy who's just walking up and saying, I need you to go back and marry Isaac. No, he, she knows that he's coming from a family with means and that if she goes with him, at least one thing she knows is that she'll be well taken care of. Now, the last thing he has to do is figure out if she's from Abraham's family, but we already know, right? Nod your heads, yes, we already know. 
We know. We know because we read this earlier. He finds out that Rebekah is one of Abraham's relatives. She qualifies. She's Isaac's first cousin once removed. I want you to know what he does when, when she tells him who her father and grandfather is. Look at verse 26. He bows down and worships. <laughs> wow. He worships the Lord. I mean, he falls on his face and thanks God. He knows this is not my doing. This is God's doing. You know, I read as I, during my study, I can't remember who wrote it, but it's not mine originally, said, success can inflate the ego of a worldly man, but it humbles the man of God. That's the story of this servant. <laughs> I mean, this guy's traveled 500 miles, which would have taken a month probably in those days. He manages to go to the exact place he needed to go. He finds the perfect girl for Isaac. He's done everything his master has asked. And what does he do? He, pray, he thanks God. He doesn't pump his fist and say, yes, I did it. I am the man, aren't I? He doesn't do that. <laughs> he doesn't beat his chest. He doesn't take credit for this. He acknowledges God in a humble way. He could have said, hey, it's all because of my prior planning. I planned very well. I have purpose in this. I have foresight. I knew what I was about to do. I knew what I was looking for. But he doesn't say any of that stuff. Success can inflate the ego of a worldly person, but it humbles the person of God. If you take nothing else from our message today, take that sentence. It reminds me of a passage in James where it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We are to be humble when we see God at work as we trust him with the promises that he's given us. And I think this probably had an impact on Rebecca because in fact in verses 28 to 30 we see that she tells her brother and the rest of the family what she said, what he had said. And I want you to think about this for a minute. I mean, Abram's left this area where his family lived many years ago and Rebecca's family, maybe they talked about him at family gatherings and barbecues, you know, maybe. You remember old Uncle Abraham? Whatever happened to him? I mean, he said something about he was going to go walk with God somewhere. God was going to show him some new land and then he just disappeared. I mean, what's going on with this? I mean, for all we know, they may have used this story of Uncle Abraham as, as a deterrent to their kids. Now, kids, please stay close to home. You don't want to end up like old Uncle Abraham and wander off and never come back. We don't want to lose you. <laughs> what comes next is that Abraham's servant is invited to, his home, to their home and enjoys the hospitality of Rebecca's family. And if we read on through this, we find that she makes a decision to go back with the servant and become Isaac's wife. And once again, God has been faithful to keep his promises with Abraham. This is a story of God's providence, of his care, of his control. God has had a plan since the beginning and he's going to see it fulfilled to his purposes. So in this passage, we see these actions of the servant. We see a humble combination. We see a beautiful combination in prayer and trust and humble reliance on the Lord. And here's what I want us to take away from this. That trusting in God's promises means focusing on the Lord and leaving the details in his hands. If we're going to trust God and the promises he's made, we need to focus on him and leave the details in his hands. Since God is in control of every detail, you can trust him knowing he will reveal his plan probably one step at a time and much like my life, usually in the 11th hour. Not in, the, not in the first hour, but in the 11th hour. 
See, God is the one we surrender to. Abraham surrendered to God by binding himself in with these limitations because he wanted to honor God by how this was going to be done. The servant surrendered to God by actually relinquishing control and allowing God to be God in this situation. We haven't even read the whole passage. It goes all the way to 67 verses. But we get one more example of surrender. At the end of the story, we see the family say to Rebecca, this is from God, she should go. And the next day the servant says, Let's go. He's ready the next day. And the family says, no, 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 no. She needs to hang around here for about 10 more days. And then they get into a little family argument together. And then one of them say, well, let's ask Rebecca what she wants to do. And you know what she says? Let's go now. She doesn't wait. She says, let's go now. I mean, Rebecca here is probably the most profound example of surrender. She's never met this guy. She's totally unknown. She's about to follow, actually, the example of Abraham by leaving her family and trusting God to do something. She doesn't want to delay. She wants to move on. Here's the big picture. There's no way this could, made, this could have happened if God was not in control. He's the one that every one of these characters in these scenes yielded to. They trusted and they surrendered. (laughs) So let me share a couple personal things. So I've uh, I've had many good and bad experiences throughout my life, which includes time before I was even here, even knew LBF Church existed, to times I've been here at LBF Church. And there's one thing I've learned is that fighting like crazy To achieve my own selfish desires is ultimately a supreme waste of time. I mean, even when we go through the effort to achieve them, overcoming maybe some obstacles that are in our way, they often bring with them more trouble than the joy we had hoped they would bring. A life spent trying to achieve worldly rewards is is really kind of like a sort of a prison. I mean, where we just never be able to seem to rest. We never be able to seem to find contentment. We, we don't experience life and freedom the way it was intended by God for us to experience. But a life of surrender to our Lord, the life of trusting in his promises is the way to freedom and getting what we really want. That is to gain a peace of mind, to gain some meaning and purpose in life. I think we all kind of crave that whether we acknowledge it or not. We do, we crave those things. Because when we do this, when we're able to surrender, we line up with the will of God, which concludes, maybe it includes some of the achievements you'd hope for in the first place, but we also experience rest. There's a freedom in allowing God to take control, to be carried by him. There's a mental peace. There's an emotional peace and rest that comes by letting him guide us. See, a life surrendered to doing the will of God is a life with less anxiety, no matter what your circumstances may be. But I've learned that when anxiety comes, God has said, turn to me. Share the reasons you're anxious with me. Make your requests of me. And then my promise to you is that I'm going to guard your heart and I'm going to give you peace. What a promise. What a promise for us to live in. Now, I got to admit, just because I said I've learned this doesn't mean I do it perfectly. doesn't mean I always live in this, despite my desire to. But when I do, and when I've seen others who do, life really works well. So we're near the end today, and I just want to ask you this question. What is one area in your life that you need to let go of 
and trust God. What is that one area that's been maybe in your mind as I've been talking that you need to let go of? You know you need to let go of and you need to trust God. You need to surrender it. I mean, do you need to let go of striving after that next promotion or that larger house? Do you need to let go of that relationship that you know is taking you away from God? Are you trying to let go of a habit or an addiction that just has its claws into you and you can't seem to let go of it? This morning, I'm gonna ask if there's something that God has put on your heart about trusting him and about letting go and letting him have control that maybe right now you've just been living life white knuckling it, holding on tight and you've been holding on to it and you're tired and you say, I wanna let go, God. I wanna invite you to come in. I want you to take control of my life. I wanna do, do, do my obedience to you in this, Lord. I'm gonna ask you to do something. I'm gonna ask you to come and stand in front of me at the foot of the stage here. And by doing so, here's what you're saying. I want to stand before God and I want to say to him, I don't want to white knuckle it anymore. I want to trust you. I want to let go of it, God. And you know what? I need your help. And all I'm going to do when you guys come up is I'm going to end our time by praying for you. I want to ask God to do his work of freeing you as you learn how to surrender to him. So would you all stand with me right now? I'm going to stand with you. I've said enough. And as this music is playing, would you just come forward? Those of you who, who say, God, I want you to take control of this. I haven't been able to let go of it. But today, as Gary's been talking, as we've been learning about Abraham and learning about Rebecca, I want you to take control. Even as I'm talking, would you just come forward and just stand here? I'm not going to know your name or anything. I'm just going to stand right here in front. Thank you. Thank you. I want to pray. There's power in prayer. You know, when we pray, God goes to work. He goes to work at accomplishing his will in our lives. And I believe part of his will is for us to be able to let go and surrender our lives and trust in his promises for our lives. Father, I want to pray for these people who have had the courage to come forward and are still coming forward. And God, I want to thank you for their commitment to stand before this congregation and be able to say, I want to trust you. I want to let go of this stuff and I want to surrender to you. And I want to ask you, God, to answer the desire of their hearts by allowing them to see you at work spiritually in their lives, overcoming the things that are holding them back whether it's a lack of trust or a lack of belief or a lack of even knowing what your promises are, God, I want to pray that this would be a week where as they say yes to you, you would give them victory in being able to surrender to you and trust you in some new ways. And I would pray that before this week is over, that you would be so present in their lives that they would say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time we've had with Abraham and the servant and Rebecca. God, allow them to walk with this area that's in their heart and their mind with giving you complete control of that situation. I pray this in the wonderful and powerful name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will all say, Amen. Amen.